This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Uh, for this afternoon's session, we have a panel of scholars to help us continue the, uh, the debate over the contribution <coughs> of Hamilton and Jefferson uh, to our nation. And uh, we have uh, Dr. David Tucker, uh, who was one of the presenters this morning. Um, also, Dr. Stephen Knott, uh, who also presented a paper this morning. Uh, we have Dr. Larry Little, who is a member of political science, uh, I'm sorry, of the history department here at Philadelphia University. And finally, Dr. Lara Brown will be the moderator today. So with that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Brown. Great. Thank you, Sue. And let me just also say thank you for um, attending this session. And we're very excited to be celebrating Constitution Day. Uh, the Ryan Center has obviously been instrumental in these efforts, and I am deeply honored to be sitting on a panel with these distinguished scholars and having the opportunity to uh, probe their thinking a little bit more about Hamilton and Jefferson. Um, for those of you who don't know, Dr. Colleen Sheehan, who is very much a Madisonian, um, I'm sure would love to be chiming in today, but she is on sabbatical. Um, and. So I'm going to try uh, in probably a most inadequate way to fill her shoes. I guess the, um, if you joined us for the morning session, uh, one of the things that's very interesting is this discussion about the tension between sort of Hamilton and Jefferson. And my students who've heard me talk about this uh, sort of know this for me, so I'm just going to put it on the table. I very much consider myself a Hamiltonian, um, but I cannot imagine Hamilton without Jefferson. In fact, it's really, from my perspective, the tension between the two, which is what makes really the greatness of this country. So I um, do see kind of the vitality in bringing these arguments to bear upon one another and in discussing their relative uh, merits and uh, sort of defects. So with that, what I've actually done, we're going to do a little bit of what might be considered pretty bad history. We're going to spend some time talking about how uh, Hamiltonian thought and Jeffersonian thought translate to today's politics and what it actually means as we think about the subjects facing um, our government and our people, uh, the economy, the health care reform debate, uh, the issue of race and Obama's presidency, and um, lastly, hopefully, sort of have a discussion about foreign policy, uh, the war on terrorism, and what it actually means for us from a national security perspective. Um, so let me just uh, begin with a question which I think is still number one in the polls, which is the economy. Um, as we look at sort of the bailouts the uh, deficit projections. I believe the last um, dollar amount I heard is that as of, I think it was August, the Office of Management Budget has said that our 10-year our deficit will reach about $9 trillion, um, which literally almost doubles what our national debt is when you add them together. So with that, I guess, given that Hamilton did say 
right? A national debt, if not excessive, will be to us a national blessing. Um, is it excessive? Have we reached that point? Um, and does this sort of contradict Hamilton's beliefs about the public credit or not? How important does the public credit kind of play into this issue? And then I guess, you know, was Jefferson right, perhaps, that, um, you know, having all of this debt will sort of encourage money men and these sort of corrupt factions um, to essentially kind of produce, I think as he says, evasion and war on our citizens to collect in order to pay off the debt. So with that, I'm just going to open up the session. And um, once we get sort of into talking, what I will do is invite uh, some questions from the audience as well. Well, yeah. Hamilton had a rather uh, <laughs> complex view of, of uh, the American economy, certainly, certainly in comparison to the, the, the Jeffersonian vision. Uh, Hamilton did want to see the United States become a, a manufacturing power. He believed that was a, an important element of the nation's national security to be able to manufacture the goods that we might need to defend ourselves. Um, he certainly believed that uh, uh, a national debt could be a blessing if it was managed properly and that you uh, develop a certain uh, credibility in, the, in foreign markets for being a, a trustworthy debtor nation. Um, he certainly believed that the new nation needed protective government tariffs until it could get its economy off the ground. So saying all of that, he was somebody who did believe to some extent in a kind of activist, interventionist national government. If he were to come back today, would he be happy to see what's going on? Uh, I think uh, Tim Geithner and, and uh, Hank Paulson, President Bush's tre Treasury Secretary, probably would have liked him have him come back because he was a smart guy and might have been able to offer some helpful advice. Um, it's always dangerous to try to project what somebody who was alive 200 years ago uh, would have thought about our problems today. Um, but with that qualifier, I would say that he, Hamilton might have endorsed some of the actions taken by both the Bush administration and the Obama administration to get us out of our current economic problems. Um, it, you, you know, to the extent that, that Hamilton was a nationalist and was somebody who wanted to build a strong United States, you can't have an economy that's uh, uh, gone into, um, into default. So uh, I'm dancing around your, your question to some extent, but uh, it's probably the best I can do. And now, he, he, I think clearly the key there, what was the phrase you used with the debt? The wellness? The, the point where he says, if not excessive. If not excessive. Um, I, I, I would imagine he would have some concerns, as we all do and all should. Really, I guess that really does depend on what, it, what excessive is. I yeah. mean, is, is our debt too excessive? I mean, according, I mean, according to what standard, you know. Um, I, I, I agree with you also. I, I do believe that. And uh, we, my class and I talked about these questions. And they sort of came to the same conclusion that you that you had that that indeed um, 
you know, that uh, 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 Hamilton would endorse uh, uh, many of those programs that, that have been offered today. Um, but, there, but the class also had a lot of problems with the notion of what was excessive. I mean, we, we did a lot of talking about, you know, uh, about a gross national product and, and the ability to pay off the interest rate and, and all those kinds of things, which, which became extremely problematic. We just did, couldn't come up with exactly what excessive, you know, when do we get to excessive? I mean, that was really yeah. the crux of, our, uh, of much of our discussion. I, I will say this, there would be one aspect of the contemporary debate that Hamilton would recognize immediately, and that is the sort of demagoguery that surrounds the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, the attacks against first Alan Greenspan, now Ben uh, Bernanke, this notion that somehow there's an East Coast, Wall Street, Federal Reserve, corrupt axis that's, you know, running roughshod over all of our, <clears throat> over the little man, uh, he would recognize those arguments immediately because in his, in his time, it was the Bank of the United States and it was Nicholas Biddle who was the arch enemy of the Jeffersonians and the man on the street. Uh, the fact was that without a Bank of the United States, uh, the United States would probably still be a third world economic power. So the kind of demagoguery that you see in these Tea Party marches and uh, some of the other craziness that's on the internet about what the Federal Reserve is up to and President Obama's plans to sub subjugate all of us under some sort of world economic order is the kind of insanity that Hamilton had to encounter in his day and unfortunately it came from a sizable faction of the Jeffersonians. I guess, uh, that sounds like an introduction to me. I guess I'm going to engage in a little demagoguery here. Uh, uh, I, you know, what would Jefferson say? I think the first thing he would say is, I told you so. Um, then, then what he would do is he would focus on not, I mean, this question, let, let me put it this way. I know nothing about economics, and from the Hamiltonian viewpoint, that perfectly well qualifies me to speak as a Jeffersonian. So. Um, <laughs> He wouldn't focus, I think, on the technical details of what's excessive, but he would point to the things that Steve was just pointing to, which is that you now have to think, under what circumstances will the federal government let General Motors fail? Would it ever, will it ever do that? Did, it not, did the government not buy the support of a substantial block of voters by bailing out the unions, that <coughs> union people who work at General Motors? Are all of those things not somehow uh, something other than what we think about as free government where supposedly the votes of the people decide things and not these economic interests. Those are the kinds of things I think Jefferson would raise and, and we should think about, in fact, in regard to that, whenever you talk about the, the government uh, intervening in the economy. I think he, ultimately those are the issues that would be most important to Jefferson. Okay. So uh, let me just sort of keep this going. And let's talk a little bit about healthcare. Um, the healthcare reform debate is obviously something that's uh, sort of on every person's lips at the moment. There's a lot happening in Washington around it. Would these men view it as constitutional? Um, would they see it as part of uh, providing for the general welfare? Or would they see it as something that was substantially a state issue? Uh, the 50 state, yeah. 
Uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I, I kind of kind of get the, a feeling, well, I mean, uh, you know, the constitutionality of health care, uh, we look for a couple of clauses that that, 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 that constitutionality would come under. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, pointed out the, uh, the you know, the, um, uh, uh, the powers governing Congress, and, and, and of course, the whole notion of the general welfare. And defining general welfare is a really a pretty difficult thing to do, you know, I mean, defining general welfare, defining common good, those types of things are, are, are really difficult and it seemed pretty elastic as well. You could almost fit almost anything you wanted to within this notion of, of the general welfare. Now, of course, uh, 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 we also pointed to the, um, to the, uh, uh, um, the uh, uh, Commerce Clause, and of, and of course, that's pretty much how, how this bill is, is, is going to really be enacted through using uh, uh, mostly the Commerce Clause. And we found the same thing, right? Pretty, pretty elastic. You could almost, you know, uh, uh, fit almost anything on, on, under that. And, and so really, uh, we, we talked about the public option um, and, and whether or not, you know, if, if the public option is mandatory, would they support it even at the state level? Uh, we, uh, you know, kind of think that, you know, Jefferson would definitely say it's a state purview, right? And, uh, but even at the state level, would Jefferson support a public option if that option were mandatory? You know, uh, 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 you know, it seemed that he, 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 he might not, it, it would seem to me that neither would, would support a mandatory public option, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, trying to, uh, maintain basic liberties uh, of people to, you know, the ability for them to choose, right? And so, difficult question on, on whether they would even support a public option, even at the state level, whether, whether they would support, support let, that. Let me just push that a little bit further, because I think there is an interesting um, sort of analogy or um, that you could draw around actually the Alien and Sedition Acts. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, Right, Jefferson was opposed, obviously, to the Alien and Sedition Acts, and yet he was okay with many of the, the sedition laws that were actually enacted within Virginia itself. Um, so, you know, sometimes I wonder if the conception of Jefferson as sort of being much more, if you will, libertarian, was not so much really the case. It was just the level at which yeah. these laws were actually being enacted. Yeah, he was, he was all in favor of, as he put it, a few wholesome prosecutions <laughs> uh, at the state level against uh, anti-Jeffersonian. Uh, uh, these would be people who were publishing material critical of the Jefferson administration. So even though he was a stern opponent of the federal Alien and Sedition Acts, he did not seem to have any problem with these kinds of prosecutions at the state level. So I think that's a a very valid point. As far as Hamilton goes with health care, um, constitutionally I think he'd probably be okay with it since this is the man who's often considered to be the foremost proponent of implied powers and reading the Constitution somewhat loosely, although that gets overstated. Uh, but he's also, I think, unfairly seen at times as kind of the founding father of the modern welfare state. and. That's, that's a little more difficult, I think, to, to affix that label to him. Um, in one of the Federalist Papers, he uses the phrase that a, a power over a man's subsistence 
is a power over a man's will. And he's clearly not comfortable with that concept. And it's conceivable to me that he would have seen some elements of the modern welfare state as destructive to the character of a Republican citizenry. Um, so in terms of just simple policy grounds, it's, it's conceivable to me that he would have been uncomfortable with some of the health care proposals that are, that are being discussed. On, on constitutional grounds, he'd probably be more comfortable with it than, than Jefferson. I think that's true. I, I think that he, Jefferson would oppose the on constitutional grounds. But I, I also think that, it's, that he would have been skeptical of, or he would have thought it better uh, to have these things handled at the, at the lowest possible level. So ultimately, taking care of, having a family where there are generations living together, taking care of one another, would be the, the best Jeffersonian solution to this problem. Completely incompatible with a complex, uh, dynamic economy that Hamilton favored because those things tend to spread families out over the whole territory of the country rather than have them live together, or generations as we, as we now experience it. Now, one, one thing that, that, that came up when we were talking about health care, one issue that came up was, was education. That, okay, you know, education is mandated, uh, uh, you know, compulsory. Uh, if education is compulsory and not being in the, in the Constitution, you know, does that mean, you know, well, yeah. you know, health care, I mean, what's the, what's the difference, you know? But, you know, I mean, uh, and I, I, was, I would suggest Jefferson and Hamilton both would be very supportive of, of education. I'm not so sure, of, of course, at, at, at national mandates, especially Jefferson definitely not, wouldn't go for national mandates. But, um, you know, you know, the health care, I mean, health care question, the education question, it sort of kind of seemed, seemed to go together, uh, seemed to go together, you know, and, and why, if, if we can have compulsory education, then why can't we have compulsory health care? It, it became part of, part, of, part, of the, part of the questioning that, that uh, we underwent. It's a great point. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a very good point. I, see, I think from... I, I think it, in responding to that, I think Jefferson would try to distinguish um, between what's, what's really necessary for government, a free government to operate and what's not necessary. And I, would think, and I think he would say that ultimately uh, educating people uh, so they understand their, their rights and their duties is, is necessary. Making sure that they, they live a few extra years is not. And the damage done by trying to ensure that they live a few extra years will far outweigh any, any good it might do in, in terms of some notion of the general welfare. Except if you're the person living a few extra years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, and, and also, excuse me, but you could, you could say, this is a typical criticism of Jefferson, that he, he could have afforded doctors and care that, right. that mass, the mass of people probably couldn't have. Right. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's open to that criticism, that those arguments make a lot more sense in his own case, maybe, than they would, as you'd say, in the, in the case of someone who's poor, unable to afford that care, and suffering. And, and of course, Hamilton gets the bullet in the head, so health care doesn't help him out. Yeah. <laughs> he got away. <laughs> now, let me ask you this, because I hadn't really thought of this before until uh, this just came up. Uh, obviously, there was a yellow fever epidemic here in Philadelphia. Um, did I don't recall either of them having ever really any 
governmental response in anything I've read. Other than, yeah, other than get out of the city. Other than just get out, right? But I don't recall any of them, no. either of them saying, you know, we should quarantine certain people or, or move certain people or... I know Hamilton was terrified of getting it. I know he cleared his family out. Right. And I know that Jefferson yeah, mocked him uh, for so doing. Uh, it was one of the more bitter letters that Jefferson ever wrote about Hamilton where he made fun of, Je of Hamilton's alleged courage as a, as a war veteran by noting how skittish he seemed to be about the yellow fever epidemic that was sweeping Philadelphia. So. Of which many African Americans lost their lives because of the the idea that was uh, uh, that uh, African Americans were immune to yellow fever, you know, uh, and so uh, uh, many African Americans were used as nurses, and of course they weren't any immunity that perhaps the first generation had. That was fought long gone by by 17. Uh, what is it? 1790. 1793. Something like I that, think right? This one right. And so uh, uh, major issue because uh, one of the things that happens is that the uh, African-Americans are expecting to have, you know, to be congratulated on their efforts, but what happens is that the city government turns around and condemns them in saying that they didn't do that, that much and then they went into people's homes and they stole uh, people's goods and things like that, which really sort of created a, a major uh, situation because the people who were were, were, were uh, uh, going out as nurses, they were pretty, you know, middle class, pretty, you know, I mean, not affluent, right, but they weren't, they weren't poor people who, who necessarily would engage in, in any kind of criminal activity. And so it was really a slap in the face uh, to the black uh, community, right? Is that a segue? That's perfect sense. In fact, I was going to thank you for that. Um, so I guess that brings us to this topic and issue of, of race. And um, obviously, uh, with President Obama being the first African-American uh, president that we have had, I think the issue of race has been um, alive and sort of within our public square very much over the last uh, couple years that he has been um, seen as a possible candidate and now president. So I think it was yesterday, former President Jimmy Carter um, made some statements basically saying that the criticisms uh, against President Obama are related uh, to some underlying notions or foundations related to racism and otherwise feelings that an African American is not justified in serving in um, that high office. So with that in mind, Hamilton and Jefferson, as they look at both slavery and African Americans and their possibilities for advancement all the way up to the executive presidential chair. Well, uh, Hamilton's uh, record on race, I think, is, is, is very impressive. Uh, he, as a aide to uh, a staff officer with George Washington during the Revolutionary War, advocated the use of uh, African-American soldiers in the Continental Army uh, in exchange for their freedom at the end of the conflict. Uh, in this letter where he talks about this proposal, he talks about the, uh, the faculties, the facilities of the African-American soldiers being probably, probably equal to those of white soldiers. Um, that they could, uh, uh, they would make make good soldiers, um, 
as uh, uh, a man of some means, although not the kind of means that Thomas Jefferson possessed, uh, it's pretty clear to me that Hamilton did not own slaves, although there is some controversy on this front. Uh, but it's, it's, it's apparent to me anyways, the evidence would indicate that he was not a slave owner. And we do know that he was one of the founding members of the New York Society for the Manumission of Slavery. So uh, again, it would, be a, it would be a mistake to portray him as a sort of fire-breathing ab abolitionist. He was not. But he was somewhere along the way, and it may have been during his time in the Caribbean, where he saw slavery at possibly its worst, uh, he, he developed an antipathy towards it. And uh, uh, not to take a cheap shot, but I would contrast Hamilton's record with <laughs> Jefferson's uh, writings in the notes on the state of Virginia, which is one of the more, I mean, it's, it's astounding. Uh, the, uh, Jefferson draws comparisons between uh, African, American, African slaves and uh, orangutans. So uh, you just do not see that anywhere in any of Hamilton's writings or any of his actions. Uh, I, I think Jefferson would be astounded that the, the United States has black president. Uh, he would, I think he'd even be astounded that uh, blacks and whites have managed to live together. To the extent that, I mean, you can have differences of opinion about how well we've actually managed that, but I think that would astound Jefferson. He felt the prejudices, and here I think he was actually reflecting his own prejudice, but he felt those prejudices were so deep and so strong that they could never be overcome. So his solution was, uh, his preferred solution would have been to get the slave, if a slave was free, to get the slave out of the United States. But he even gave up hope of that after a while in terms of just acknowledging that the economic costs of freeing the slaves were so great that the white population of the United States simply wouldn't bear that, uh, bear that burden. So I, I think that it, it's a, it would be a remarkable thing to Jefferson. Uh, and I, I think ultimately um, he, would, uh, he would accept it and I think he would, there's a letter which I, I'm always happy to point to because it, in this regard it's one of the few things you can point to that puts Jefferson in a good light. But what he, his argument essentially is, I entertained this prejudice that blacks were inferior. And uh, I, over the years people sent him, knowing that he published this uh, prejudice, he, uh, people would send him periodically um, writings of, of various black authors. And in response to, on one occasion, in response, he said he was glad, <clears throat> glad to see this. He hoped it would be evidence to convince whites that blacks, in fact, were not inferior. He said, I hazarded this opinion when I was, you know, in years past, but I'm glad to see the evidence to the contrary. But the important point, and to me it's important because of Jefferson's association with the Declaration, what he says is, even if the blacks were inferior, that would not have meant they should be slaves. And the analogy he gives is just because Sir Isaac Newton, one of the three greatest men, according to Jefferson, who ever lived, is so much the intellectual superior of everybody else, it didn't give Isaac Newton the right to treat those intellectual inferiors as slaves. So uh, I, I'd like to emphasize that because I think whatever you may conclude about Jefferson's attitude towards blacks, the argument about human equality is separate from his personal opinions about blacks and in the long record of, in the long in his long life there's a 
a record, written record, uh, that reflects a variety of views and, and attitudes. Although I, I'm not trying to deny that he did have this, this prejudice. And, and his arguments on human rights are the very arguments that African Americans eventually pick up and use to help to overturn, you know, uh, uh, some of the prejudice. I mean, the prejudices uh, uh, that that exist. But I, I agree totally. Jefferson just simply did not believe that black people could compete in a free society, and therefore he had to keep his slaves because to let them look, to set them free would be a disservice to uh, uh, to to them because they wouldn't be able to, uh, be able to compete. You know, um, the other part of that of, of, of the question you asked me, uh, you asked us, is, is it, I, you know, I, I, this this semester I'm teaching um, uh, American, the American Constitution, so I, I did a lot of prep for it over the summer, and uh, uh, you know, it, it, and I I have a whole section on, uh, uh, of course, on Jacksonian democracy, you know, from about you know. From Jackson, Jackson to uh, to the to the uh, uh, beginning of the Civil War, uh, much of which uh, race has you know race isn't an issue, you know uh, um, races you know they're they're talking about the banks they're doing the turfs they're talking about national improvement, you know but and yet it seemed that it was always even though they're talking about a turf. It was always a concern of how whatever decision they made about whatever else they're talking about, how it would, in some ways, have an effect on, on, on race and slavery. I mean, it seemed like it was always in the back of the mind of, of, of their minds, even though it's not. You know, I mean, we do have uh, uh, African Americans losing uh, um, uh, the right to vote during uh, Jacksonian period, but other beyond that, it you know nothing direct, but. Still, under the surface, every decision they make, it's it's almost like you know. Okay, well, let's think about this and how what what consequences it's going to be for race without really actually saying that. You know, it was, so it was astounding to me how uh, how, how how I'm doing an entire unit where, where race isn't an issue and yet it's it's still there. You know, it's it's just it's, it's like there under under the surface, right? Which I guess when it comes, we 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 talked about. Uh, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people in the class didn't didn't necessarily see it as being. You know, they saw legitimate issues being raised today. But even the even the one even the students who saw those legitimate issues also kind of considered that there was perhaps an undertone that 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 that's in the argument that that race is is helping to to inform right an emotionalism that might not necessarily be there. If, um, if if race were 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 not um, a, a, a part of it, right? And so, d difficult, difficult. Right? Yeah. Sorry, Steve. Well, you saw you saw this in this this parade this past or this march in Washington this past weekend. Now it's you, I know you have to be careful in terms of labeling an entire crowd, but there were certainly a lot of those signs, and they're posted on the internet that were clearly uh, racist in nature. Mm -hmm. And I do. I do, I, I do think for some white Americans this is a, this is a, tough, this is a tough time. They, this is something they've never experienced in their lives and it's a difficult adjustment for them, unfortunately. Well, I was only going to say that I, uh, I think that if you're, if you're a skeptic of uh, the power of the federal government, um, the, the whole history of slavery has, has made it hard to make that argument. It's hard to argue for states' rights 
without being identified as a crypto exactly. uh, racist. Exactly. So that's, a, that's an additional complication when we talk about our own federal system, uh, a way in which the legacy of slavery has made it difficult to sometimes to have those arguments because you, you can't make that argument without bringing up that history. And I, you know, that's, again, Jefferson, I think, is the, you know, the father of, to some degree, I think you could say he's the father of states' rights, and that's another uh, difficulty in his legacy. You know, uh, uh, there's a, a similar kind of, kind of situation that, 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 that uh, I, in, thinking about, in thinking about this issue, you know, uh, it's sort of like, okay, if I, if, I, if I disagree with Israeli policies, does that make me anti-Semitic? You know, I mean, I mean it's not, it doesn't quite, yeah. you know, but you no, know, it's yeah. something pretty similar, you know. Yeah. It, you know, I can disagree with Israel, I can say everything, you know, Israel is doing is wrong, they shouldn't be doing this. Does that indeed mean that you know that I'm anti-Semitic? I mean, it's, it, it, it becomes it, it becomes really a, a problematic situ situation, right? Um, I know one thing though. It, it one of the things that I think, regardless, is, is that it's creating a, a dialogue that we we really need to to have, right? I mean, and sometimes we we overlook the dialogue. For instance, uh, remember during the the campaign, Ferrero. Um, said that the only reason why Obama's in this position is because he's a black, black man, right? And we, uh, uh, and, and, and everybody jumped on Ferraro without ever really considering what she was saying, right? And so when we came back, I mean, for instance, uh, 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 when I came back and I talked to the class about it, you know, I mean, very often, I mean, even here at Villanova, you know, many, many, many of our students, many of the white students will say that the only reason why the black students who are here are here is because they are black. Uh, uh, kind of say, almost saying that if they were white and they did the same things that they do, you know, or had the same type of life, you know, they wouldn't be able to achieve, wouldn't be able to be here because they wouldn't have achieved enough, right? And so it's, it's a dialogue that instead of, instead of yelling at Ferraro, we didn't examine what she actually actually said, and I think that's I think Obama being president gives us an opportunity to create a dialogue, and because I mean we have I mean there are real differences in the way that black people see America and the way that white people see America it doesn't make either one wrong. It just makes make means that there are, are real differences that we we, we kind of really need to talk about. Yeah, I mean I I think one of the things I'd like to just weigh in on with this because I. There is a way, though, that, like, I believe education is all about helping people to distinguish, right, arguments from generalizations and be able to um, identify sort of valid dangers from sort of made up dangers. And the thing that concerns me with this notion that sort of race is under everything is that then I think at some level we start to devalue when real racism, real discrimination is occurring, people are not able to, to see the differences. And for me, I'll tell you the, what it sort of calls up for me, was shortly after the Clarence Thomas, Anita Hill uh, confrontation and many of the laws that got put into place around sexual harassment, there was a lot of discussion about well, is complimenting a woman sexual harassment? Is, you know, is any sort of minor flirtation in the workplace, um, is that sexual harassment? And 
this sort of idea that everything then became sexual harassment actually diminished those individuals who experienced it. And in fact, it was sort of looked upon for a while as, oh, well, that's just another one of those claims. And I think that that's unfortunate because there are people who suffer real injustices because of some of these sort of bad behavior or prejudices. And I, and I just would hate for us to sort of you know, wash away this idea that people could have legitimate differences that are not, if you will, race-bound or gender-bound or ethnicity-bound. Um. Well, you know, p part of the problem, part, part of the problem is, is that for, for, for African Americans, it's really difficult for an African American to tell the difference between a racist and a jerk. <laughs> I mean, it, it really is. I mean, it, it simply is, right? I mean, you know, there are situations that happen every single day, right? You know, and that, that, you know, you don't know, is, is this person treating me this way because he's a racist? Or is this person treating me this way because he's a jerk and he treats everybody that way, right? And, 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 and there are just so many one-on-one -on -one encounters mm -hmm. that, you know, you're only going to meet this person one time, you know, you're never going to get to know this person, right? And so the default, very often, the default is, is, is racist. I mean, it, it might not be fair for that to be the default, but oftentimes it becomes the default simply because we, we, we can't tell. We don't know, and so we, we sort of just fall back on, well, you know, it's racist. And, and that's, the safer, that's the safer place. That's the place where you can begin to put up your guard. And, 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 and so it, 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 is, it, 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 it is problematic because everybody that you think is a racist, you know, it's just, it might be just that, like I say, it treats everybody like that. You just don't, don't know. But I guess my question is, would it be different if President Obama were, say, J.C. Watts, right? Mm -hmm. You know, was an African-American who was a conservative, um, you know, and who didn't then also side with the more sort of liberal policies. Like in other words, if you were actually proposing states' rights, you know, um, from Jeffersonian side, instead of, you know, talking about a stronger national government. I, I just, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's just difficult, you know, I mean, it, it's just, race is just so, so, so ingrained in every, everything that we do. It's, it's just, I mean, uh, I can see, uh, you know, I can see signs with, with J.C. Watts' name on it. <laughs> I mean, of course, J.C. Watts wouldn't propose universal health care, right? right? But uh, uh, I can see his signs, uh, you know. I mean, I, I don't, I, you know, I don't actually necessarily see it as a, a liberal conservative kind of thing, right? I mean, I have, I have you know, uh, people may see me as being more liberal, right? But I have real problems with many liberal ideas, right? I mean, and... and, and uh, I've been going back over myself over and over and over again whether or not I ever called Bush a Nazi. I mean, you know, I was trying to figure out, because, you, know, you know, I was the real critical of Bush, but I've, I've been trying to think if, if my criticism has ever taken on a form that, that might, you know, you know that, that, that is taken on today. And I, 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 I I really don't think it has, and I've been extremely, you know, I've called him stupid, I've called him dumb. I've never ever called him, you know, a, a Nazi or any, anything like that. I, 
I've never questioned, I never once questioned Bush's love of America. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think people question um, uh, uh, Obama's love of America simply because he, 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 he you know, partly because he, 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 he is black. And I think, I think that's where the, the whole birth controversy thing comes right. in. That's, that's part and parcel of that questioning. Well, and certainly what's interesting about that is, right, obviously Hamilton being thought of as sort of the alien person mm -hmm. yeah. who comes yeah. to this country. Yeah. Um, One of the things I most admired about Hamilton is he never engaged in sort of pandering to the public. And I think if he were to come back today, one of the things that would shock him most would be the, uh, well, obviously the, there'd be a number of things, but the <laughs> lots of things. But the 24-7 news cycle and the fact that we're all so connected to one another, uh, and, and the fact that we live in a, a media environment where, in some ways, the extremes are, are emphasized. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he'd be very concerned about what he wanted, what he hoped for would be a system of deliberative government. I think. Uh, deliberation is arguably dead and has been replaced by thing, you know scare tactics, death panels, uh, take your pick, both sides do it, the right and the left both do it. And in that aspect of American politics I find to be very frustrating and I think, I think Hamilton would be really mm -hmm. upset with as well. Yeah. I, think, I, mean, I, think, I think that you know, in many ways you know, I, we've just kind of lost the art of compromise. I mean it's just we've so polarized, yeah. I and mean, these guys, I'm not, I'm not so sure, sure about if Hamilton and Jefferson would ever go out and get a drink together, <laughs> right? But I mean, not was, wearing a coat yeah, like that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> you know, we were talking. You know, the place, it, you know, it's not Madison's notes that we you know, you, that, that we really want to talk about counterfactual. Right? Not Madison's notes, not the official notes. It's what's going on at the pub. That we really want to know, you know, what's what's happening at that pub? You know, what kind of decisions are they making? How are they, you know, over a beer or over a, well, what what is it that they, you know, over a drink? Hard right? cider or something. Right, some hard cider, right? And, I mean, that's, you know, and I've heard, I've heard, um, I've heard other, you know, uh, uh, I've heard present-day Congress people say that that one of the problems is, is that e even in the 50s and the 60s, they were in Washington, they socialized with one another, even if they disagreed mm -hmm. with one another, they socialized with one another. They say now, you know, beyond the news cycle, it's like they, they just go to the office, they do their work, and then they go back home to campaign. Mm -hmm. So they're always in campaign mode, and they never have a chance to know one another, even if, even if they disagree with their ideas, they, they still don't, don't know each other. Um, in, a, in, a, in a way, especially that our founders knew. I mean, they, they pretty much knew, what, knew one another pretty good, I, I would believe. And the hope, the hope was that the United States Senate would be a, particularly the deliberative body, and due to a number of changes, one of which was the 17th Amendment, which provides for direct election of senators, as opposed to having them be selected by state legislatures. Uh, that would be a change that Hamilton would not, not have been pleased with, and I'm not sure it was an improvement. In some ways, it's made the Senate more like the House, which is not the role the Senate was supposed to play. Great. Okay. Any last well, I, uh, I just uh, I, I want to say a few words for not compromising. If, uh, in, in this sense, that I think that if um, you have to ask, I guess that you know, contrary to so, some of the ways in which Jefferson is seen or sometimes talked about, he did he did make compromises. 
but the, the question for him was, what, what are we talking about? And when he, in the original conflict with Hamilton, he thought the very character of the United States was at issue. And that was something that couldn't be compromised, had to be fought to the death. Um, or I guess, you know, in Jefferson's case, somebody else's death. Um, but that, that was very important. But you have to ask yourself, is health care, does that, whether we have it or not, does that touch the fundamental character of the regime? I think that particular question is over. Uh, I think we, we, our regime has changed so much that that is no longer a question about the character of the regime. It's more or less about the details. So I, I don't know that in politics now there is a question that actually goes to the character of the regime. There may be, you know, uh, I think people believe that the, in the aftermath of 9-11, uh, there was this possibility and, and people reacted to the Bush administration. And it wasn't actually just Democrats or liberals. A lot of conservatives uh, objected to the Bush administration because they felt that there was a, a, a uh, in the aftermath of 9-11, a tendency to overlook these basic constitutional provisions and an understanding of what civil liberties was about. And that may be an issue that really you, you, you could say we can't compromise on. But other, other, the other things we've talked about, I think Jefferson would, he could strike compromises on these things because I don't think he would see them now touching the core of the regime. That has changed enough from the way the original conflict he had with Hamilton. Thanks. I, I think there's, there's one thing I sort of want to do because it's always really important to me to try to make these men real, um, to not make them people who are just on the money and uh, very two-dimensional, you know, sort of framers. Um, and I'm going to kind of refer to Rick Rukeyser here. He he says in uh, his most recent book, actually on on uh, Buckley. He mentions that the baby food for liberals is hope and the baby food for conservatives is nostalgia. And I think there is a tendency with all of us when we think about the framers to end up in sort of this nostalgic world. Um, I would actually argue at some level that both Hamilton and Jefferson, especially given the vitriolic comments that go back and forth in pamphlets and the like would feel right at home in this sort of politics of personal destruction world. They might not like the means through which it happens. They may, might not like the immediacy with which it occurs or sort of the fact that it does. But I, my sense is that as sort of distressed as they might be by it, it would also be somewhat familiar to how things developed, especially after Washington dies in 1799, and kind of, you know, the restraints are gone. So I just would ask you to comment on that. Well, I think, I think Jefferson would be very comfortable with the politics of personal destruction, <laughs> since he's the, he's the founding father of the American model of, I mean, the, the campaign that was directed against Alexander Hamilton was not simply a campaign to counter his political views, it was a campaign to destroy him. And it involved uh, uh, revealing an extramarital affair. It involved uh, accusing him of being a, a monarchist at a time when that accusation was comparable to accusing someone of being a communist in the 1950s. So um, yes, uh, actually, they both would be very comfortable with it. And Jefferson, in fact, uh, practiced it. All for a good cause. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> no, I mean, if you look, if you really, if you really think uh, that Hamilton is overturning this unique opportunity to create a, a nation of free uh, people, uh, what would you not do to put an end to that? And I think from that perspective, I'd have to say, I think Jefferson was restrained. Um, or at least I might say that. I guess I just did. Uh, but I, I, you know, again, you know, I, it's very hard to put, our, to put ourselves back in the 1790s and think about what Jefferson thought was actually at stake and what he thought. And I think there's lots of evidence uh, that he was right about this, not to say that Hamilton was a monarchist, but I do think he wanted to uh, create a system of government in the United States that Jefferson had good reason to believe was not compatible with a democratic uh, Republican government. And it's not surprising that the uh, conflict between them escalated the way it did and that it turned out and became so vitriolic and personal. The character of the regime, the way he thought his dispute with Hamilton did. You don't think he'd be back in the tea parties? Uh, would he be back? I think he would be sympathetic with him. He would say it's good to see that those ideas are alive, that that spirit is alive. But I, but I don't think that he would say that the passage of health care legislation or its failure or whatnot is going to fundamentally change the character of the regime. I mean, that I think it's I, I, I read once there's actually a famous scholar and I, I've been trying to track down the source of this. And I'm not sure I ever found it, but uh, a guy the one of the first historians to write about this um, what, what came to be called Republican ideology that, that was dominant among, very influential among people in the, at the time of the revolution. And he claims that he, there's a letter or some publication, some writing of Madison's in which Madison predicts that Republican government will end in the United States in 1932. <laughs> so uh, I think, you know, in retrospect, uh, Jefferson would say, yeah, that's pretty much right. I mean, the, the real seeds of this go back to the rise of industrial, you know, the industrialization in the United States and so forth that fundamentally changed the socioeconomic basis of our politics. And it's not surprising that uh, when the crisis came, we had the New Deal and that essentially put an end to Republican government, as I, Jefferson, understood that. And I think Jefferson would look at health reform now and say, well, you know, that debate's really over. And now the question is, what's the most efficient way, if we, if we actually want to do this, what's the most efficient way to do it? Uh, and I think he would clearly have preferences to have the states run it rather than the federal government and all of those sorts of things. But I don't think he would engage in the level of uh, political conflict he did in the 1790s because I just don't think he would see that as a, you know, I, we, we, Jefferson did agree to compromise with Hamilton on the assumption of state debts. And it wasn't until he became convinced that this was part of a larger Hamiltonian, a, you know, brilliant, brilliantly conceived and executed scheme to fundamentally change the character, from Jefferson's view, to change the character of the United States, of the government, and really of the people, that he, that that's when the real uh, conflict with Hamil Hamilton begins and escalates from there. I think uh, one of the more I think David's right that, that Jefferson did see, and Madison, I think, came to believe as well, that Hamilton was somehow undermining this, the spirit of 1776 and attempting to import basically a British or European old world model into the United States. I guess what disturbs me is that um, uh, 
they never went after George Washington with the same <coughs> level of venom that they went after Hamilton with. And in fact, keep in mind, George Washington is the President of the United States, not Alexander Hamilton. The policies that were implemented during the first eight years of this, of our government, were George Washington's policies. And nine times out of ten, George Washington sided with Alexander Hamilton on the great issues of his day. And why Jefferson would seem to think that he owned the franchise on the American Revolution is something that I think you need to think about. Uh, here was Washington who, without George Washington, I would argue there's no successful American Revolution. Um, there were plenty of people who had a hand in making this experiment work. And Thomas Jefferson was just one of many players. I don't think Thomas Jefferson, however, viewed the situation that way. Uh, he had a certain contempt, deep contempt for Hamilton, and ultimately a deep contempt for George Washington, although he shielded it. Um, look, there's a simple reason he didn't attack Washington. That would have been political suicide. Yeah. That's right. That's, that's right. right. But that doesn't alter the fact that, for whatever reason, Washington ended up on the wrong side. Uh, from Jefferson's viewpoint, you know, I mean, in other words, Washington didn't, Jefferson never thought, he, he always deeply respected Washington's judgment and his character. He didn't deeply respect Washington's understanding. And he, he thought that Hamilton was affecting Washington's understanding. And the understanding was key, and no matter what kind of judgment Washington had, which as far as I know, Jefferson never criticized, except you may say by implication because he he made the judgment to trust Alexander Hamilton. But he really did believe that Hamilton had changed, had, had, had uh, influenced Washington's thinking to, to the degree that Washington had, uh, in fact, turned his back on those principles. And again, if you think the character, the fate of human freedom is at stake in the United States, which is what Jefferson thought, uh, it's not surprising that he opposed Hamilton and carefully opposed uh, Washington the way he did. The real question is, was, you know, was Jefferson right or wrong in that judgment? Uh, and if you believe he was wrong, then I think a lot of what Steve has said follows. And if you think he was right or more right than wrong, um, then I think you're more sympathetic to him, even to the devious things he did in, in pursuit of that objective. Well, and actually, that leads well, so thank you for the segue. Um, <laughs> to sort of the next question, which is really about um, foreign policy and the war on terrorism and how it is that we're, we're executing these things. And I, the reason why I say that's a segue is because I think it is very instructive that as um, President Bush's poll numbers were still very high, um, Democrats who were opposed to the administration went after Cheney and Rove. Um, so I, I, this is a very common, um, you know, sort of strategy when you're in the opposition, right? If you can't take the popular one down, you take uh, the unpopular one down. Um, so I think, you know, I, I had sent uh, these gentlemen a, an editorial that um, was actually published in uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer, which was sent to me by one of my students. And it was written by an attorney um, by the name of Christine Flowers. Um, she said something that I thought was very interesting and somewhat related to this. Um, and I'm going to quote from her. Um, it is a little bit uh, unacademic, shall we say, but it's um, certainly worthwhile. She says, we Americans 
like to think of ourselves as iconoclasts, proud of our pioneer heritage and the way we flip the historical finger at our colonial oppressors. We talk about and believe in liberty and justice and are usually able to balance those competing interests when necessary until September 11, 2001. That's when the flames and fury split the population in two along an invisible fault line. Those who saw the world as it is and fought to meet the challenge in whatever way they thought necessary and those who saw the world as they wanted it to be and refused to violate their own concept of honor. Both were convinced that they were the true patriots, the realists who ran into burning buildings onto the battlefields and into the murkier recesses of what the Constitution permitted, thought that they were preserving and protecting their country. The idealists, who believed they loved their country just as much, refused to accept that time had been shattered in, into pre-9-11 and post-9-11 pieces. So I think infused within this sort of argument itself, you can see some of this Hamiltonian realism and Jeffersonian idealism, even though, right, um, if you think about Hamilton as the father of uh, sort of the Republican Party and um, Jefferson as the father of the Democratic Party, um, then of course, we're sort of upside down um, in terms of what our political parties did in this current time. But I would just ask you to um, sort of reflect on that, think about where we are with regard to Afghanistan, Iraq, um, torture, and the like. Okay, uh, well, when this, this, this question was perhaps the most polarizing of the questions, even, even more so than the, the racial question was for, for, for the class. Um, uh, and I couldn't keep it constitutional. I, I tried with all to keep it, you know, I tried to, with all my might to, to, to keep it constitutional, but it kept becoming moral. It kept, became, it kept becoming, well, it, the Constitution almost didn't matter. You know, it, it, it was more of a, it became more of, especially the torture aspect, became a, more of a moral issue. Uh, 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 uh. Anthony, I see Anthony down there, right? I really want to call on you. <laughs> okay, I will call on you. <laughs> okay, it was just so, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's almost the way that, that, that she describes it, right? I mean, part of the class felt that, okay, well, you know, it, it, the security was at stake, and so if you have to take those extra legal means in order to uh, maintain security, then that's okay. Others, you know, no matter what. You just simply can't go across that line. And it was almost like the, the two couldn't meet. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, there was nothing I could do to, to get the two to, to meet. I'm, I'm not sure if, I mean, I just, I, I, there was, I, I just couldn't get the two to meet. And, and they just, threw, I mean, they just, you know, every time I ask a constitutional question, they just kind of, <laughs> who cares about that? <laughs> you know, it just broke, it just broke down into, into such a moral issue, or, or you know, uh, uh, you know, one side and the other, you know, I, I, I felt that, you know, she was she was right. Uh, they did kind of throw race into this question as well, though, mm -hmm. because uh, uh, especially since you brought out the Barbary pirates, uh, uh, where they would say that Jefferson would not have, they said Jefferson would not have treated uh, the Brit British soldiers in the same manner that they treated uh, 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 um, uh, Barbary pirates, right? And that, there was this notion that you know Americans wouldn't treat. Uh, well, I don't guess. 
they didn't say who people who Americans wouldn't treat. They just said that partly what's going on with 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 uh, with with with, with, um, with terrorism and, and, and down in Guantanamo Bay had a had a racial element to it. You know, um, you know. But they couldn't. They 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 were just well, half was on this side and half was on that side and. I couldn't do anything to, I, I, I couldn't even get them to talk about the Constitution. And they just didn't want, they just became a war issue. <laughs> I, I actually think Federalist this is, papers where he talks about something to the effect of not, not chaining the government down too much so that it can't respond to potential emergencies. Uh, Jefferson, uh, on more than one occasion, wrote about the, the law of necessity and the fact that uh, there may be occasions where the head of state has to basically throw himself into the court of public opinion to justify these extraordinary measures. So I think, I think the two of them, uh, uh, you know, they might have some sympathy for the position that President Bush and Vice President Cheney found, them in on, found themselves in the day after 9-11, which is basically telling the CIA, the FBI, and the military, you do what you have to do to make sure this doesn't happen again. Period. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I, I guess the only thing I would say is that the, the judgment you reach, I, I believe that Jefferson would have made that judgment about things overseas as well as within the United States. That is to say, if he really thought there was an, a domestic threat to the security of the United States, he would be willing to do things outside the law. I think he would have been much more reluctant to reach that judgment concerning a domestic issue. but. Nevertheless, ultimately, he would have said, yes, if, if there's a serious internal threat to the United States, then you have to do whatever you, you need to do. But, uh, but ultimately, he also, as Steve was saying, he, he did say that ultimately it's the court of public opinion which will make some judgment about that, but that it's the duty of the official, the president or the governor, uh, to take that risk, that ultimately he may be impeached, he may be vilified, but that was what the office required. But I don't think he ever had any question that there were things that, uh, and that, that, that it would even be all right, although I can't cite a place where Jefferson actually said this, but I think he would also think it would be all right to hide those things uh, in some cases from public opinion. Um, I guess the reason why I brought up the Barbary Pirates is only because they seem to be very interesting in terms of sort of, if you will, a non-state actor, right? So. Um, you know, I can see them having perhaps a similar response to say, um, you know, a foreign country invading or um, the like. But the interesting part to me about, about terrorism is this issue of what do you do with essentially individuals who are committed to a cause, who have decided it's in their interest to pursue it. Um, and the Barbary Pirates is interesting to me, and of course, um, partly because it's my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong on this history, but it's my understanding that Jefferson essentially says, well, we'll take their arms, but then we will release them. And Hamilton responds, well, that's sort of ridiculous. If you take their arms and then you release them, they're just going to go get more arms and come back and attack you. So that Hamilton makes an argument saying that essentially when somebody else declares war on you, whether or not you have declared war, you're living essentially in a state of war. Um, so it's interesting to me as I think about, if you will, jihad or um, sort of you know, the war on terrorism, 
what are our responsibilities, our rights? You know, what, what is the appropriate course of action? And where would these two framers have thought about sort of Guantanamo Bay or Afghanistan? Well, I think uh, Professor Little mentioned that some of, you, some of your students thought there might have been a racial component to the treatment of the prisoners in right. Guantanamo. Correct. And that Jefferson, uh, that you know, the, the, and then the treatment of the Barbary pirates probably differed from the way that Jefferson would have treated the British. British I, right. mm -hmm. I think I would have to disagree with that because Jefferson viewed the British as barbarians, <laughs> and uh, really had, I mean, just very strong language about that empire and what it stood for and the kinds of people who did its bidding, and you you can see this. Uh, after he's out of the White House, when his friend James Madison is president, and the British burn Washington, D.C. to the ground, and Jefferson is just beside himself that this symbol of American independence and American liberty has been uh, besmirched by the British, and he urges that we retaliate in kind by sending arsonists into London to burn down St. Paul's Cathedral. <laughs> and there you go. <laughs> that shows you the kind of hard, uh, hard-ass Machiavellian <laughs> side to Jefferson that we don't think of when we go to the Jefferson Memorial in, in Washington, D.C. I agree. I, you know, I, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think there was any, uh, I'm not sure exactly what this incident was, but I, I think that Jefferson was, even when he was our uh, ambassador to France, he argued that we ought to take military action against the pirates. He didn't like this European system of buying bribing them. Uh, he wanted to, to take care of the problem and he was perfectly happy to support. He tried to encourage a first a, a kind of a alliance, you know, you could say an alliance of the willing, as the Bush administration tried to say, to take care of the pirates, but he didn't find anybody who was willing. And so ultimately, um, when he had the power to do it, he that that's how he proceeded. Uh, I, I think there, there actually are some interesting similarities in that, uh, in principle, you can think of the North African states as failed states in the sense that they were nominally under the control of the Ottoman mm -hmm. Empire, but the empire was so weak it really couldn't control the territory. And they were operating uh, in that sense, you know, somewhat in the way we may think of Somalia today as a place of, of refuge from which they could head out and, and, and commit their acts of piracy. So I think there are actually analogies here. Uh, I think that, again, you know, the fundamental point is I, I don't believe that Hamilton or Jefferson would have had a difference of opinion about uh, the need to deal with this. And it's interesting in this case, and there are some others, I think, too, where, where Jefferson was uh, quite willing to use force, um, more, more willing, actually, than a number of other people who had confronted the same problem. Excellent. Well, we have about 20 minutes left. So what I would love to do is take um, some questions from the audience for our distinguished panel. Um, and if you'd like to ask a question, if you could just do me a favor, stand up and say who you are so we can all hear you. Any, any questions? I think everybody's frozen. Could be. No thoughts? Everything came through with so, such, such clarity. clarity. <laughs> it was so crystal clear, you know. By the way, can I see this? There's a pamphlet or poster around campus with a quote oh. from an alleged quote from Jefferson on it. Yeah. Um, 
I'll speak for myself, but I'm pretty sure this is a bogus quote, <laughs> that he never said this. What, what, so. what does it say? Uh, a government big enough to give you everything you want is strong enough to take everything you have. Uh, unfortunately, there's a <laughs> tremendous number of these fake Jefferson quotes that circulate on the internet. Yeah. Incorporated. No, no, no rap against the Delanover Students for Liberty, but just <laughs> be a little more cautious about your choice of quotes. Delanover Students for Liberty and misquotation. <laughs> I mean, I, I would say that it's a Jeffersonian sentiment, hmm. even if they aren't Jeffersonian words. I'm Tim Brown, teaching the Department of Theology, and I wanted to ask a question about the health care issue. Um, the responses I heard were framed in terms of government obligation. I want to flip that around. Would either Hamilton or Jefferson say that there is a right to health care? No. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't, I don't think Jefferson would accept that. I can't. I can't. No. I don't see that. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, from, well, from Jefferson's viewpoint, you have, you, have, um, you have rights by nature, right? And you give up some of those rights in order to, to enjoy the rest of them. And do you have a right by nature to health care, so to speak? I think Jefferson said, no, you know, you, there are, your, your rights are actually very limited. And, the gov and you give up a, a smaller, even smaller portion of those rights to the government to get that minimum amount of security you need to live your life and pursue your life, your, your personal objectives. But there's no guarantee in nature, so to speak, that you'll be taken care of. You have to take care of yourself. It's not government's duty to take care of yourself. It's the government's duty to prevent other people harming you while you go about your business. But that's, that's about it. It is a very limited notion of what government can do and should do. But it's based on a no, uh, it is based on a, a, an understanding of what uh, of, of what uh, what rights you have by nature, so to speak, or what you do simply because you're breathing. Yeah, I mean, I would just add to that that I I I think it's very difficult, even though Hamiltonian thought does translate later in the United States history into a notion of positive liberty. I think the reality is is that really none of the framers had a sense of government actually acting in, in a way in favor of positive liberty, whereby the government is actually um, protecting your claims for the government to do something for you or to make a more fair system. That certainly comes later um, with our 14th Amendment and, and the like. I mean, I think the framers really did have a negative view of liberty um, and much more that sense of your rights um, within a governmental system are all about being protected from government, from that imposition, not for it. Yeah. I was, I was going to say, Alexander, don't, you have that exact same thought, don't you? Okay. My question was given the legacy of statesmen that both of these men had, and even though they disagreed about how to go about it and how they were going to achieve it with uh, delineation of power in the states and the federal government, um, there 
well, their main goal was to strengthen the United States and create this nation that we have for the well-being of both the country and the people in it. How do you think that they would feel in light of all of that about this current political culture where it was mentioned that there's this constant state of campaigning and that there's this kind of pandering to public opinion? Is it less about um, actually statesmanship and, and looking at the general welfare, not necessarily political success, and how do you think either Hamilton or Jefferson would feel about that? Well, I think, uh, to start off, Hamilton would be proud of the fact that the country did emerge as a superpower, that the country, um, certainly the 20th century has often been referred to as the American century, and hopefully, you know, that will persist for some time. Uh, and he certainly would be proud of that. I think both of them would, and perhaps particularly Hamilton, would not be impressed at the current state of our politics in that it is constant campaigning, in that it is appeals to emotion over reason, uh, in that over 220 or 30 or so years, the institutions of our government have become more democratized, more perhaps receptive to public polling and so opinion polling, that that's not statesmanship, that's not leadership. And so we've, uh, in a way, put ourselves in a position where we've made it more difficult, perhaps, for statesmen to emerge. We've, we've made some changes to our system, both formally and informally, that have, uh, again, downgraded the possibilities for true statesmanship. So I think he, he uh, Hamilton especially, would be disappointed by that. Uh, I actually think Jefferson would 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 uh, not be entirely happy that the United States has become a world power, uh, because I think he would he would think about the costs involved in that, in terms of personal liberty. I mean, I'm not trying to argue that. You know, during the Cold War, people argued that well, you know, the United States has become what they call the national security state, uh, where we're you know we're sacrificing all of our internal freedoms in order to fight to preserve our freedoms. What sense does that make? I'm not actually arguing that that ever occurred, but I think Jefferson would point to those sorts of things, and I think he would be, uh, he would be they're, therefore not completely uh, happy that the United States has become a world power. And I, and I think he would see that in terms of Great Britain's history, um, in terms of the sacrifices that are called on, uh, that people are called to make for that, again, in terms of their personal liberty. So I think that's a difference. Uh, I'm not sure that Jefferson would be completely happy with the way domestic politics works, but I think he would adapt to it pretty readily. And uh, if he did actually come back to life in a few years, he might be elected president again, if that's constitutional. <laughs> I think he was, you know, this is a point that we, we've talked about earlier. And he, he was, a, I think, really a remarkably clever man in terms of politics and how he did things. And I think he would adapt to the current system. I believe Hamilton would have had a much harder time doing it. I don't believe Hamilton could get elected today to anything. I think Jefferson probably could. Hi, Craig Whelan from Political Science. Um, Washington warned about political parties and factions, etc. And he probably had Jefferson and Hamilton in mind when he did that. But um, the way these two guys operated during the 1790s sometimes credited with the sort of the birth of political parties. Do you think that they would uh, that they both saw political parties as contributing to good democracy, good deliberation, 
policymaking, or would they see uh, one of the solutions for the United States to have a strong political party, at least two major rival parties? I mean, uh, th just the idea of a loyal opposition is something that just it, it doesn't even it doesn't exist in, in the 1790s. I mean, uh, I mean they would, I mean that's part of the reason why the Alien Sedition Acts come come about in the first place. Is just is the idea that you know, you know the party that's in power. I mean the people who are in power represent you know the government, and any attack on them is a, is an attack on on, on the um, on. on on, on the people, right? And so I, I'm not so sure that I, I think that they were. Once again, all this, this is kind of counterfactual, all, you know. But you know, it, I, I think they. Neither one of them. Maybe Jefferson. It's hard to say about about Hamilton because, of course, he, he doesn't live, right? But I, I, I think neither one of them see, especially during the early period. I don't think they see necessarily see political parties as being something that that, that would be good, you know. Per, uh, uh, perhaps we where's the Madisonian person when we when we need them? <laughs> perhaps Madison might 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 see some good in them. But it, uh, I I just think the the whole concept of a, of a loyal opposition is just so so foreign to them at, at this point in time. I mean that's part of what what's being developed is is, is the this the. To have the idea, I mean, part of what's, what's being developed is having that idea that it's okay to to have people who are opposing your policies and your ideas. I think that's just something new in American society that, uh, you know, I, I don't think Hamilton ever had a chance to, you know, actually get into too to, to much. And I, perhaps not even Jefferson either, because the Federalists, by the time Jefferson comes to power, the Federalists, uh, uh, you know, or not by the time they come to power, but after he's been in office for a little while, the Federalists are, really don't have a whole lot of power uh, other than regionally. Um, so it's hard. I, I don't think they would necessarily like the two-party system. Yeah, I mean, Jefferson didn't see the Republican Party as a party as we understand that. They were the heart and soul of, of the United States, uh, you know, of saving the revolution. And the Federalists were illegitimate because they had turned... <coughs> given up those principles. So his purpose was really to destroy the Federalists. And when he says in his first inaugural, we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists, uh, that, you know, that was very clever rhetorically, but he was not at all happy to see them disappear. So in that sense, I think uh, he would be surprised at this notion of parties and, and so forth. But again, I think he would adapt to it pretty quickly. Yeah, I think, I think Jefferson would have adapted quickly and Hamilton would not have. And Hamilton was, in a sense, a leader of the Federalists for a brief period of time and didn't do a very good job. So it, the, the, in some ways, he was most effective at destroying his own party when he came out <laughs> against John Adams in the 1800 election. So he was not a political operator. Um, I'm going to call on Allie, and then Peter, you um, know. I was wondering. Yeah, I, I would say there's no doubt. Jefferson thought that we were who we, we were because of what we thought and the way we lived. 
and the laws reflected that rather than the other way around. Although he, I think he also would have said that there are certain critical points, uh, the founding, some other points where if you change the laws, you're going to affect the way people think and live. But fundamentally, it's, it's the spirit behind the law rather than the law that's what's really important. I, I, I would agree with that. I, I think Hamilton perhaps would be a little more sympathetic to the idea that the law is, is a teacher and that the law shapes society um, and thus you know, that, thus the reason for the real pitched battles during the 1790s because they were well aware that they were setting a number of precedents. Not only, uh, when, when Jefferson, Jefferson always talked about office as a burden. And uh, you have to think of him as very selfless, you know, therefore, because he stayed in office so long. If it was such a huge burden, he was clearly self-sacrificing tremendously. Um, but that's the way he talked about it. And a part of that was his notion that you didn't want, you didn't want anyone to think that they could profit from government. And government should be seen as a... Um, as a necessity rather than a good thing. All, all, of that's, all of that's true and that fits, but it does raise this question of how you would get people to enter the government. And, and, and Jefferson's answer was essentially that his educational system would fix this insofar as it was specifically designed to prepare the best people uh, to, for that kind of life. And ultimately the honors they got from doing that would, would help keep them there, but he, he really hoped in a way that, that, that they, it wouldn't become so attractive that you would ever get professional politicians. I don't have much to add to that except that, and this is where I think some of the criticism of Hamilton is accurate, that he believed that the national government would attract the best and the brightest. And it would attract the best and the brightest in part because you had the potential for great fame, and I don't mean, you know, Britney Spears fame, I mean the real thing that lasts, secular immortality. And that, it, part of that would be probably through, through war. And if I could just add to that, um, Hamilton was at one point in time um, sort of offered to engage in some speculative uh, real estate deals and things like that, security. Um, you know, trades. And he actually wrote a letter uh, to a friend of his that he knew from King's College, which is now Columbia. Uh, Robert Troop was his friend. And he said, 
because there must be some public fools who sacrifice private to public interest at the certainty of ingratitude and obliquity, because my vanity whispers I ought to be one of those fools and ought to keep myself in a situation the best calculated to render service, because I don't want to be rich, and if I cannot live in splendor in town with a moderate fortune moderately acquired, I can at least live in comfort in the country, and I'm content to do so. Um, so, I mean, I think he very much had that understanding of that notion of fame, that it is about um, the statesmanship from that perspective. Of course, I'm going to just add to that and say, I began my American statesmanship class um, this semester with a quote um, that David, that uh, Truman, actually, Harry Truman brought up, and he said, um, a statesman is a dead politician. So I, I think the interesting part is it brings to mind the fact that both of these men were politicians. I think Hamilton believed he was um, defending the government against party. I believe that Jefferson thought that he was defending the government because it had lost its mind to some other party. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yet, I think at the end of the day, they become our greatest statesmen because in some ways they were our greatest politicians. Well, one thing, there's a, in connection with that, there's, a, there's an interesting letter. This is when Washington was still asking Jefferson for his opinion about things. And, mm -hmm. and uh, somebody had offered uh, Washington, this is kind of a very, it sounds like a very modern thing, but they wanted to give him a lot of shares in a canal company they were putting together if Washington would merely allow them to publicize that he was interested in it. Because Washington was so influential that if they got his name out there, everyone would buy shares in this company. And they were going to give Washington a lot of shares in it uh, just to allow them to do that. And he wrote to a number of people, he wrote to Jefferson among them and said, should I do this? And Jefferson's response was, look, your sacrifices are so well known that nobody will think for a minute if you agree to this. But he says it to Washington, think of what they will think if you decline it. Your, your honor will be burnished even, even more brightly, and your, your name will live forever. And ultimately, Washington turns down the deal. So, you know, Steve was saying this is not Britney Spears fame. It's the difference, really, between vulgar fame and the real thing. And that notion of the real thing was very alive for these people in a way in which I'm not sure it is anymore. And I don't know how you recover that. It was partly their sense of, their own sense of their worth and, and partly uh, the, the times in which they lived. But that was a real motive for these people, for, for Jefferson as well. I mean, there's a reason he kept everything he ever wrote. He knew people would, you know, like me would spend, and others would spend time reading and talking about it. So he wanted that record preserved. And that's, I, I'm not sure that still lives in us in our political life the way it did for them. But that was a huge draw to get involved in politics. I'm not, I'm not so sure that they, that, you know, I, I, Actually, in some ways, perhaps that the, the just the writing of the Constitution itself it, is partly a realization that that that, that virtue virtue in citizen I mean in statesmanship is, is isn't going to happen. That they uh, uh, that they realize you know I mean they go off they start off with this assumption that uh, the educated the virtuous would always go for the common good. 
of course, it only takes a year or two for them to realize <laughs> that that's not right, you know. And so I think in, in some ways that's partly the way that they, why they frame the Constitution in, in the manner that, that, that it does because the, they are concerned that, that self-interest is just going to be, is just going to be so overriding that we have to frame this in such a way that, that even if, you know, even if we do get those self-interest, those so many self-interests will, you know, will, will, will you know, not allow anyone to uh, any one self-interest to uh, you know to dominate. You know, to become this despotic. So uh, smart planning or self-fulfilling prophecy? I, 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 <laughs> I think, think self-fulfilling prophecy. I will go with. <laughs> you know. Love, and then we have to wrap up. Um, say about Jefferson, with regard to the franchise, for example, the right to vote, he was always, and he was criticized by other members of the Virginia gentry because he, for example, wanted more representation of the western parts of Virginia, which were underrepresented, uh, underrepresented and he wanted to extend the franchise. But it's very hard when you read his writings to imagine him agreeing that blacks or women should vote. But if you were to plunk him down in the middle of the United States right now, uh, I believe he would adapt to that. I mean, I, I don't think he would ultimately hold that opinion. Um, but, you know, again, that's speculating. But I, I think that with regard to white males, he was clearly on the side of representing them, giving them, like, making sure land was available to them, giving them opportunity. Jefferson was uh, behind that. And in fact, he saw Hamilton as. Um, and the Federalists more generally, maybe it's too much to say specifically in Hamilton, but the Federalists generally is being opposed to that. That was one way their difference manifested itself very directly and politically. If you were to plunk Hamilton down here today, I mean, I, you know, I may be taking a, too much of a rosy view, but the fact is that in some ways he is our first immigrant success story, or one of our first immigrant success stories. He was born in the island of Nevis spent most of his childhood in St. Croix, comes to the United States as a 14, 15, 16-year-old, hardly a penny in his pocket. The only reason he's here is he had a wealthy benefactor back in St. Croix. Um, I would argue that the kind of economic system that he envisioned was designed to create new opportunities. It was very much in line with sort of Lincoln's vision of a sort of opportunity society. And part of the reason Lincoln and I think Hamilton were so opposed to the notion of slavery was because it sort of just locks things in place. 
You had a very stratified society and southern society. And so, in a way, Hamilton was in some ways the most forward-looking thinking, uh, forward-looking member of the founding generation in that the, the, the economic system that he puts in place ultimately contributes to the destruction of the slaveocracy that existed in the South. So I would say were he to come back today, he, is, he would be somebody that would, that would be very proud of the fact that this country has provided opportunities for immigrants like himself. Well, I'm, I'm, once again, I, you know, I, I, I totally agree with the with the with the idea, you know, blacks, uh, black people and women, notwithstanding, with, with the idea that Jefferson uh, definitely wants to expand the the, the franchise and, and have more uh, uh, white males uh, uh, to uh, to be able to vote. Um, I, 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 I really, it's not a whole lot I can add to to what 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 what's already kind of been said on that matter, you know, um, it's uh, yeah, it's all this counterfactual, all this <laughs> projecting, you know, conjecture of what they would think, you know, um, uh, 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 you know, in some ways, you know, uh, um, I think uh, 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 Madison, he talks, he, 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 he mentions uh, uh, later in his life that, you know, that he, he's really uncomfortable with being revered the way that, you know, that he has been revered as being a, a member of the founding fathers. And that, and that, you know, that the nation should evolve in, in whatever manner the people uh, wanted to evolve into. And so, um, and so in, in many ways, I, I, I think that, you know, we hear notions of original intent all the time, and, and, and whether you know what did the founders think. I mean, I, I'm not so sure if the if it's you know if you know what the founders think, of course, is important. But you know, for us to make decisions based on on perhaps what 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 a Jefferson felt America should be, or even what a Hamilton. Uh, felt America should be is just not really being fair that neither Hamilton uh, uh, nor Jefferson, not to say, you know, this isn't, hasn't been a, a real blast, <laughs> you, you know, but, uh, you know, it's, it, like I said, it, it, this is just absolutely great to, you know, be able to bring these issues to bear and, and to really discuss these issues is, you know, you know, it's good to maybe, you know, think how they would think, but I don't think we should ever uh, uh, try to make any decisions based on you know what would you know what would Jefferson say, what would Hamilton say. I, I think the decisions that we need to make are, are based on what. Um, what's your name again? Love. What you would say. Okay. <laughs> what love would say. Right. So it's Well, on that note, um, let me wrap up and thank you um, both for being here and my wonderful panel for um, being a part of this uh, Constitution Day. And I really do appreciate, uh, my goodness, the Ryan Center, all of our um, sponsors for making sure that this day happened. So thank you all. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.